for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's sherd, and my my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. Well, if you could keep that psalm open, that would be uh, wonderful. And let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at it. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Oh, Father, we want to ask this. For ourselves this evening. We ask it in Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as Lizzie was reading Psalm 22, I wonder what struck you. With your mind's eye, what did you see? 
It's hard for a Christian to read it without seeing its striking similarity to the crucifixion of Jesus. The little details like the dividing of his clothes, the taunts, the cry of dereliction, the sufferer's humility, the lack of desire for vengeance, and then the glorious aftermath with a worldwide ingathering of the Gentiles. It's a truly remarkable psalm. It's apparent description of the crucifixion a thousand years before means I think this psalm is a word to any of us this evening who are are coming here and feeling doubts about our Christian faith. It's graphic account of God's king suffering terribly, being feeling totally abandoned means that here is a word, I think, to any of us who are suffering in various ways. To those facing grief or illness. To those like a person that I spoke to this week who is facing a situation in which someone is out to get them. And it just feels so frightening. And then the glorious, exhilarating finish of this psalm means here is a word, I think, to, to those who might be feeling a lack of excitement about the Lord. I wonder how enthusiastic and confident are you feeling about sharing your faith at the moment? As I ask that question, I wonder if some of you just feel a little sigh inside and think, oh no, I don't really feel like that if I'm honest. And it's so easy, isn't it, for a, for a preacher to try and make you feel guilty about not sharing your faith. But this psalm, I promise, will really help our hearts. It's a psalm of King David. And as we look at these David psalms, we learn what kind of king he was. And we discover that he sets a special pattern, a template, a silhouette of God's anointed king. And he's teaching us what kind of king Jesus will be. In particular, he's a suffering king, as we see in many of the early Psalms, but also a victorious king, as you see in Psalm 20, for example. But this Psalm connects these two together. God's king must suffer terribly before he enters his glory and is vindicated and victorious. I'm going to put just simply two questions to this psalm this evening. What do you see when you look at it? And then how will you respond? So first, what do you see? What do you see when you look at verses 1 and 2? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but find no rest. This is a man of faith, yet greatly suffering. And it seems that God's abandoned him. That God's not answering, not saving. It feels like God's protecting presence has gone and he's feeling utterly disorientated. 
It reminds me of the brutally honest words that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, A Grief Observed, that he wrote after his wife died. He said this, When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, if you remember and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Well, that's what the sufferer of Psalm 22 experiences. But who is he? Well, on one level, he's speaking for the whole of the human race after our eviction from the Garden of Eden that God has forsaken us. But this is a psalm of David. It's his personal experience, is it? It seems somehow more exaggerated than anything we've got recorded about David in the scriptures. As if it is speaking of someone beyond his time and place. Because it is amazing, isn't it, how much of this psalm is alluded to in the crucifixion accounts, in the Gospels, if you're familiar with them. Most notably, on the cross, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the New Testament sees this psalm as a prophecy fulfilled in Christ. So let's have a look at some of the details. What you have in verses 1 to 21 is a kind of to and fro, a kind of internal dialogue. Some of the paragraphs, the prayer is speaking of me and my distress. And in others, he's speaking of you, God, and his trust in him. So look at the second paragraph uh, from verse 3. And this is a paragraph where you see his faith uh, in a a you paragraph. Verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. He responds to his situation by not blaming God. God is holy, perfect, without sin, and God is higher. He's enthroned. And he remembers verse 4, the times passed when God's people trusted him and God delivered them. That is a wise thing to think about when you are in trouble. God has saved his people in the past. Many times before. For us in the Church of England, we shouldn't worry. God is able to save and look after his people. But it begs the question, why is this sufferer forsaken? Well, verse 5. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Compared with my ancestors, he says, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinful, insignificant worm. Now, Jesus, of course, was not a sinner like this. But when he died on the cross, he was treated like a sinful worm, taking the punishment for our sins. And we see the treatment he received in the next me section. So verse seven, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. 
if you know it, these words have been put to song in Handel's Messiah and it's been going around in my head, uh, probably annoying my family uh, the last couple of weeks. But it's so helpful. Handel really captures the the feeling of this psalm, uh, if you like uh, his music. But isn't this kind of suffering so hard to bear scorn and insults and to bear them alone as he did? But these words are exactly what Jesus suffered from the crowds and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. So see then the next you section, verse 9 to 11. He turns again to God and he thinks about how God has always been with him. Again, this is another great thing to do. He remembers as an infant that from when he was an infant, coming out of his mother's womb, And from when he was young, God taught him to trust in him. And so in spite of everything, he's still crying out. Verse 11, do not be far from me. And then we get in verse 12 to 18, what is really the heart of his suffering. What do you see when you look at this? Well, he tells God what it's like using vivid pictures A gang of evil people that are surrounding him. They're described in verse 12 as like bulls, strong bulls. In verse 13, like roaring lions tearing their prey. A few years ago, we went over to uh, a wildlife park in Broxbourne in East Hearts. And we happened to be at the lion's enclosure at feeding time. And a male lion came up and stood on his hind legs and climbed up and grept onto the sort of wire mesh right in front of me and roared. And it was absolutely terrifying. So muscular and athletic. And you just realise you'd have no chance if that, if that uh, fence was to go. You'd be gobbled up straight away. And that's the picture here of these people. You get it again in, in verse 17. They're described this time as like a pack of dogs. Uh, And he's not talking about poodles here. So nice fluffy little dogs that you might put in your bag. But wild, ferocious, feral hounds. And in verse 21, wild oxen. And significantly, verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. When I was in the Scouts, I was subject to a cruel game called being staked out. Uh, I sort of slightly hesitate to tell this story because my son has just joined the scouts. Uh, But I was uh, one of the younger boys on scout camp and I was regarded as one of the cheeky ones. And uh, so I was singled out uh, to be staked out. And that that is an awful thing, actually. I had to be chased through the woods. Then the whole troop captured me. They took me back to the camping place and they tied my hands and my feet to tent pegs and spread me out on the ground and they put tomato ketchup and uh, washing up liquid and soaked me a bit and then just left me it was i would honest it was absolutely horrendous i can remember it so vividly today like 30 odd years later that feeling of being completely on your own with the whole of the troop against you It is an awful feeling. And that is the kind of suffering 
that this sufferer in Psalm 22 is going through. But of course, it's far, far worse. He is absolutely alone in his suffering as he bears the sin of the world, as these beastly people execute him. And the heart of it is in verse 14 down to 16. Like many Psalms, the middle is the crucial point. And there you see his life is described as being poured out. It's right at an end. His bones are on display. He feels like his insides are melting away. His mouth is all dried up. What do you see when you look at this? Well, don't you see exactly what Jesus went through for us? A detailed graphic description of an execution that fits with his crucifixion. Even, verse 18, they divide up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And yet still, in 19 to 21, he's praying to God for deliverance. And wonderfully, that prayer is answered. Or at least, David, prophetically, by the Spirit, is totally confident that it will be answered. Because, from verse 22 onwards, there's this sudden change of scene for the last third of the psalm. What do you see going on there? Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. He's come through it and will be among God's people, praising God. This verse is quoted in Hebrews 2 verse 12. And the writer to the Hebrews says that it is Jesus saying these words. Hebrews shows us most clearly that the apostles consider David to be a prophet and that this is about Jesus. And didn't Jesus, after his resurrection, gather his people and declare God's praises in the upper room and on the mountain in Galilee? And he calls everyone to praise God too. Why? Well, look at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He wasn't abandoned. He suffered and died for us. And God heard his prayer and raised him to everlasting life. But what is the result of this? Well, it's magnificent wider and wider will spread the good news of what this king has done. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Indeed, all who fear God are called to praise him. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will turn to him, turn to the Lord because of him. All the the families of the nations is what it says. That's a reference, I think, to the promise to Abraham. Verse 29, even the rich, and in fact, all who go down to death. Verse 30, it's future generations. His suffering and his victory from the grave will be told to everyone, everywhere, forever. And verse 31 sums it up, because he has done it. He's perfectly completed God's plans of salvation. It's similar word, isn't it? I wonder if you hear the echoes of that other cry on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. 
he's done it. What an amazing psalm. What do you see when you look at it? Isn't it Jesus in his death and resurrection completing God's salvation plans for us? And so, how will you respond to it? While I was at the General Synod in London last month, there was an afternoon when people were sort of whispering with excitement and the word was going around, President Zelensky is coming. Well, he didn't come to the Synod house, but he was coming to Westminster. And one afternoon, a whole bunch of bishops and some others went off to Westminster Hall to hear him speak to a great gathering. This leader who has been suffering as his people have been attacked so viciously. A year ago, it looked hopeless, didn't it? And yet, through many trials, they're starting to get hopeful of victory. And he ended his speech, of course, with Churchill's victory sign. When you see a suffering and then victorious leader like that, aren't people drawn to him? Everybody wanted to be there to see him, to praise him. Well, in a far, far greater way. Isn't this how this psalm is concluding? People from everywhere coming to praise this suffering and glorified king and to worship and bow down before him. Nine times words like this are used in the last part of the psalm. The message is clear. This is how we should respond to Jesus and his achievement for us. Turn to him, trust in him, Bow down before him and praise his name. I wonder, have you done that uh, yet yourself? This psalm really helps us. It was great in a recent Lent talk at Frogmore to see uh, how the archaeology helps us have confidence in the Bible. But here, from inside scripture, is an account of the crucifixion from 1,000 years before. What a help. To those who have doubts, will you trust in him? And isn't this a word to those who are suffering? Think of the worst kind of suffering you can imagine. And I think of the Holocaust. A Jewish author and Holocaust survivor, Eli Wiesel, wrote about his experiences in concentration camps in a book called Night. And perhaps his most harrowing experience was when the camp guards tortured and publicly hanged a handsome-looking young boy. And just before the hanging, someone whispered behind him, where is God? Where is he? And as thousands were forced to walk by and watch him die over half an hour, the same voice behind Wiesel asked, where is God now? Where is God now? And Wiesel says, I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? He is here. He is hanging here on this gallows. Wiesel was not a Christian. But the voice he experienced spoke truer than he knew. There are no simple answers to human suffering in this fallen world. But we can see Jesus hanging on the cross for us, as it is described here in this psalm. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, 
I could never myself believe in God in a world of suffering if it were not for the cross. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his terrible, lonely suffering on Calvary. Will you turn to him if you haven't yet done so? And then finally, isn't this a word to those who've lost their excitement of Jesus? Psalm 22 plunges the depths for us, but it does it in order to bring us to the heights of joy. Now, you may get excited about Zelensky or Churchill. You may be thrilled about sharing how you've had some narrow escape from something and you want to tell your friends. But look again at the cross and the resurrection. Isn't what Jesus did for us in taking our sin and dying for us so much better? It is worth singing from the rooftops. At Frogmore, as I was saying, we've enjoyed some uh, baptisms recently. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear people give their story about what God has done in their lives. Jesus' death and resurrection really do change everything. They are a reason to have hope again, enthusiasm again, a reason for living in this suffering world. When you look at Psalm 22, what do you see? Isn't it Jesus in his death and resurrection, completing God's plans for us? And so, how will you respond to it? Turn to him, trust in him, and then join with the psalm and bow down and praise the king. Well, we'll do that in just a moment in our final hymn. But first, let's just have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in a prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you so much that Jesus underwent the suffering on the cross for us, that he bore our sin. Uh, He was treated uh, as a worm and despised, and he did it for us. We thank you so much. And we thank you that he rose again victorious, that you answered his prayer, and that he now reigns, and that people everywhere, all over the earth, are turning to him. Lord, I pray for us here tonight, that we all may be those who truly turn to him, and worship him and bow down. And we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to do so now. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you see when you look at the cross? Well, our final hymn begins, Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. Let's focus our thoughts and our hearts on him and what he's done for us and praise him now. Thank you.
as we stand, some words from Jude to encourage us as we go from here. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.